Among some other terrible taglines, Ronald Reagan coined the phrase, it's morning in America. But amongst the black bodies being mass incarcerated, the poor being made poor, and the lack of action against the AIDS epidemic, it was clear that the beautiful morning he spoke of was only for a white, straight, and more affluent America. In 2020, when the Lincoln Project reappropriated the phrase, it's morning in America, as a grief statement, we are mourning, it finally felt appropriate for everyone, not just a select few. Today, I feel that morning when I hear of another AR-15 being used to mow down a crowd, a black man being shot in the back at a routine traffic stop, one more state falling prey to the don't say gay and anti-trans bills. But I also see activists rising up, new voices taking the main stage, unlikely heroes finding ways in their personal lives and communities to do something, anything, to keep their communities safe. This reckoning really took off in the 20 teens when millions of us took to the streets, others organized digitally. As proof of our strength and of our collective efforts, we were able to vote out an administration that sought to exacerbate our issues for their own personal and political gain. Hey, I was definitely amongst those who believed that a new administration would lead us out of the darkness and into the light, but two years in, we're still in the darkness. Maybe in some ways we've slipped back into our old habits and once again, we need to tune our hearts to the wisdom of new voices. Maybe a few like Tori Glass, creator of White Homework and Sterling Freeman, the co-founder of Counterpart Consulting. Maybe it's time we stop pointing fingers at others and start to work on ourselves. Welcome to The Pre-Work a limited podcast series about being in relationship with one another. Part one of this podcast focuses on the somewhat divergent ways BIPOC and white folks can prepare to go on an equity journey together, while part two tackles justice and equity, but for queer and straight folks. I'm your host, your narrator, and sometimes panelist, Crystal Cheatham, alongside Melvin Bray, who serves as our interviewer. And now, Melvin. Having come into a sense of political awareness in the 1980s, I remember when Ronald Reagan coined the phrase, it's morning in America. It was not morning for many of us. It may have been morning for some, but not for most BIPOC folks, queer folks, and poor folks for whom there are few, if any, structural advantages. Yet, despite how it felt, we had to learn to survive. And survive we did, in the wilderness, in the margins to which we were so often consigned. In 2020, when the Lincoln Project reappropriated the phrase, it's morning in America, referencing instead the homonym for grief, the statement finally felt apropos. We were in the midst of a convergence of multiple crises and longed for reckonings with regards to them all. So much so that the cyclical nature of crises of inequity actually caught the attention of many who had previously turned a blind eye. More people than ever began to ask, what can we do to make things better? Millions took to the streets. Others organized digitally, the most substantive nationwide undertaking 
of 2020 may have been the voting out of office of an administration that only sought to exacerbate for personal and political gain the challenges we were facing. Many hoped that a new administration would lead us out of the darkness of the traditional ordering of society that advantages some while disadvantaging others so consistently. What will come of this hope is yet to be determined. But one thing is sure, you can't get somewhere new privileging the same old voices. You need new voices, guides, who have learned not just to survive, but to thrive in the marginal, wild, overlooked spaces of the natural beauty of equity. I'd like to introduce you to two such guides. It is an unsurpassed honor to be in conversation with Tori Williams Douglas, compassionate creative genius behind the anti-racism initiative known as White Homework and Sterling Freeman, one of the founding partners of Counterpart Consulting, a firm that works with organizations looking to develop a race equity lens. Let's start here. What brings you to the work of racial equity? Why does it matter to you? And what specific impact are you trying to have in your work? Well, Melvin, thank you for that question. Um, it's an important one. and. I'd say that there are several things that sort of converge that bring me to the work and keep me in the work. The first of which is being a black man in America, simply. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was introduced to a form of this work many years ago, it was not called racial equity then, so I'm dating myself, <laughs> but it was like multiculturalism, you know, those terms mm -hmm. back in the day. Yeah. And when I was introduced to this work, what I found was is that I was able to get my hands on some language and ways of thinking about my experience that convinced me that I was not making, a, making it up in my head. You know, mm. white supremacy culture has a way of telling us that this is just a tape playing in our heads and mm -hmm. not a real experience. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing. The second thing is certainly being a, a, a father uh, that keeps me in the work, having um, a black wife and a black daughter mm -hmm. and a daughter who uh, came home at an early age saying, daddy, they were talking at school today about hair and what is good hair and what it's bad hair. And wow. so we had to have a conversation. I was trying, Melvin, to be on my P's and Q's, as my late grandmother would say, as a, as a parent, <laughs> and trying to help my daughter understand, and this is important, how that was a conversation about race and how, most importantly, how there was nothing wrong with her. I think the other thing is, is certainly um, uh, my theological background. Uh, I am uh, what I would consider a uh, 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 liberationist in my theology. And I particularly lean towards womanist theology uh, that the great Alice Walker sort of coining that term of womanism back in the, in the late seventies and, and putting it in print later in the early eighties. And this group of black women scholars who took that and, and built a branch, a, a, continually, a continually growing branch of theology that is about love regardless, that is about community and leaving no one behind, uh, and that is about justice. What about you, Tori? Yeah, absolutely. I came to this work um, 
sort of inadvertently, I definitely, as a child growing up in Portland, Oregon, which is where I live now, noticed the massive racial disparities, right? Um, my dad is black and he was my absolute favorite person in the world, right? Like little Tori, just like hero status. And everybody I saw, it was clearly a disproportionate number of black people experiencing crisis in my city. Um, and I, you know, I still remember multiple black people just, just driving past, right. Um, from when I was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old and going like, this is not, this is not representative of the number of people that I'm seeing in the city. And, um, mm. yeah, I didn't, I didn't like that. That did not add up to me at all. Let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be easier for you or for anybody else, just to ignore issues of racial inequity. Put, put your energies into just advancing yourself. I mean, I think that inequity is very much a result of the system we have, right? Okay, I'm just going to pause here because we are already hitting some pretty interesting points in this conversation. So, Let's take a moment to get familiar with this term, racial equity. Racial equity, as defined by racialequitytools.org, is the condition that would be achieved if one's racial identity no longer predicted, in a statistical sense, how one fares. And so racial inequity is when two or more racial groups are not standing on approximately equal footing, such as the percentages of each ethnic group in terms of high school dropout rates, single family home ownership, access to health care, etc. Okay. Let's rewind and step back into this conversation. I know Tori was just about to say something very important and I want y'all to catch that. I mean I think that inequity is very much a result of the system we have, right? I, like the framing is so interesting because growing up in like primarily white evangelical spaces, the yeah. framing was absolutely that the problem is you yes. and the system works, yes. right? And now we have all of this data that says, that shows clearly that the problem is the system and we work. <laughs> like we're doing the work to <laughs> yes. stay alive in a system that yes. is meant to destroy us essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not a healthy system. It just isn't, right? Yeah. It's a soul-destroying, soul-sucking system for people of color and for white people, right? Yeah. For straight yeah. people and for queer people. Exactly. It's, it's not healthy for any of us. Yeah. So that's really how I come to address that specific issue of, well, I could just be working for myself, right? And like doing mm -hmm. my own thing, but I can clearly see like how capitalism is working for everybody else. And maybe some of that is appealing sometimes. I'm not going to lie. I'm a human being. And sometimes it you know, it's like, hey, it'd be fun to be all like glamorous and whatever. But <laughs> ultimately, right, this is this is how I'm I'm choosing to view it, that 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 the that lens and that paradigm of working in this space, it just in the US, I like it's there it's so broken, right? And it's so unhealthy. And to be able to get as many people out of that as possible is I think a very kind of fulfilling goal to have. Absolutely. Yeah, I so uh, certainly resonate with what Tori is saying, Melvin, and that's a, that's a great question. One of the things that comes to mind for me is that 
I think folks who sort of proffer or put forward that logic are either benefiting greatly uh, from the way things are, mm. or they're trying to figure out how to benefit from the way things are. Um, you know, it is sort of, I think, incumbent upon uh, me, and it's, uh, I think for on behalf of myself and others like me, uh, to turn on the light, right? And to expose that thing in the middle of the room that we keep tripping over, right? To name that. Uh, yeah. That is to say yeah. that because I turned on the light doesn't mean I created it. Uh, I just exposed it, right? I turned on the light. And so, so I, I think that, <laughs> that, that there is, there is a, a responsibility uh, uh, in, in doing that because those who are benefiting from this, um, you know, mm -hmm. white folks who are over-advantaged uh, because of the way that structural racism works, those folks are uh, continuing to invest and to spend money and to figure out how to reify uh, this human hierarchy that is white supremacy, right? And so there is a way yeah. in which there is yeah. this sort of looking over the shoulder, uh, uh, creating stories out of out of uh, building edifices, you know, of kind of uh, um, fear, you know, out of the the, the sort of insecurities uh, that they yep. have, and then th there are those of us who are sort of bumping up against it every day. And so there is a way in which this thing is detrimental, uh, although differently to all of us. Uh, and, yes. then I, and, and and I would say there is a way in which. Uh, it is detrimental to the point that it is dehumanizing, maybe That's in different right. ways, but it's dehumanizing. So what I'm saying is, is that I am in this work because it not only means my liberation and those who look like me, but it's liberation for those who don't look like me. It's liberation for white folks as well. So I'm talking about us all getting free uh, and being yeah. in a different place and being, being together differently. The very idea of changing the system just feels too big, right? Like, like it, 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 it's, it's, you know, we often say it's a structural problem. How do you change the structures in which we live, right? Like, so then what, what's, the, what's the thing you have to say? Like you, you just explained why you do the work. What's the thing that you can say to me about why I should put my energies to it when it feels like to change a system is going to take longer than my lifetime. I am laboring for some things, the fruit of which will come uh, when I'm gone. Mm. Uh, and, and, mm. and, and, and what we know about justice, right, mm -hmm. is that that is actually how that change happened. Uh, we, although we want it to happen yesterday, it turned slowly. And so my thing is, is that if we... Uh, uh, are about justice. If mm. we are about that, uh, which is right and righteous, um, if we are about sort of realizing the humanity of all folks, then for this time uh, and in this place, we have to do our piece of it because the reality is, is that there no, there's no way that we can separate ourselves from being part of this system. We live it uh, every day. Uh, we're, we may be consciously and unconscious unconsciously complicit in it. So my, my argument is, is that it is not about me changing this system uh, alone. It is about me doing the work 
where I'm planted and where I'm rooted and hopefully uh, inspiring others to do the work where they're planted and they're, where they're rooted. So in a collective way that we might begin to do uh, systems change, that we might begin uh, to uh, surface different ways of being with one another uh, so that we can shift uh, the ways in which we operate uh, in our context and in our culture. Yeah, and I think kind of piggybacking on, on what Sterling said, right, there's this idea that frequently you are going to plant an orchard and never see the fruit, right? Like you won't be around that long. Um, that's a very mm -hmm. real thing, like doing work now so that future generations will benefit is something I'm particularly really passionate about. Yeah. Um, you know, because ultimately I, it's not about me as an individual trying to take down the system or me like rallying white folks to try to take down the system. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about doing some of like some more, more of the groundwork, right? Mm. Those pieces there. And I think too, that we really, we forget that the civil rights movement was in living memory, right? Like yeah. the system has changed before. Um, gay marriage was legalized a couple of years ago, yeah. um, which is, monumental in the context of the u.s mm -hmm. um the system can change i i like i just reject the idea that it's it's too much right we just have to be in the right places the right spaces the right time like the system can change um and i think that the other piece of this and why i'm so passionate about anti-racism work being in this space um and something that i so appreciate about Black women and femmes especially seem to have this sort of understanding that, you know, folks are, you know, very frequently folks who are maybe more aligned with us as Black people, white folks who are aligned with us as Black people more politically have this sort of, we need to burn the entire system down, right? Just tear the whole thing down, start from scratch. And I completely feel that way on many days, not going to lie, but there are still people in the house. So setting the house on fire is not going to, that, that's not a solution. That's, that's using violence to solve violence. Um, and so I really want to be able to <laughs> encourage people like, hey, yes, there is a system, but also like, let's not harm all of these other people who again, mm. have fewer resources than we do, right? Have less access than we do. Um, even like, even the three of us literally. And so like, how can we make this work in a way where we are not, punishing people who have less autonomy, less dignity in their lives um, as we are forcing this system change, so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I completely understand that. You know, I, in doing work with movement folk quite often, you know, one of the refrains is, you know, folks still have to eat, right? Like, so, so yeah. you know, we, we can't be so determined to, uh, to shift everything before we figured out how people are still going to eat, yeah. how people are still yeah. going to, to house themselves, how people, people are still, need their meds. Like, yeah. They need their meds, right? Like all, all those things, right? Like, so the determination has to be there, but it, but it has to be there with a mindfulness about people's circumstances Yeah, and that Absolutely. sort of thing. So, Absolutely. so, let's shift gears a little bit, right? Like, like assuming we're going to take this equity journey, right? As opposed to trying to justify it. Um, when we talk about 
individuals and organizations undertaking a racial equity journey. What exactly are we talking about? Where are they trying to get to? And uh, how is that different than this idea that, that we used to hear all the time about equality? Mm. Yeah, Melvin, excellent, excellent question, my brother. Um, and the, fu the fundamental question when we're talking about the difference between equity and equality, the fundamental question really is how is power operating? Okay. And so when, so when we're talking about an organization going on uh, a journey, we're not talking about everybody just learning to respect one another and to mm. treat uh, one another nicely uh, the same, um, because if we're doing that, but we have the same systems and the same policies and the same norms and all of those kind of things, then we're going to get, get the same result, which is going to be being nicer to one another. So what that sets us up for is to navigate, right, the same system as it is and to just to figure out how to survive together in it, right? not to actually change it or shift it. So when we're talking about equity, we're actually talking about interrogating everything about us, about that organization. Mm. And doing that uh, with the racial equity lens, meaning that every part, at your, the, the way you make decisions, uh, your, your policies and procedures, um, your, the, the way that you develop the priorities from your programming, if that's the kind of organization you have, Every piece of your organization mm -hmm. is interrogated with a lens, listen, that is rooted in the experience and the wisdom of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Sorry, my heart rate is up. I'm like, no, yes. No, preach. come on in. <laughs> Um, I think what's really interesting about this too, like kind of adding on to this, like, okay, who said, right? Like, what are we, if we're going to put everything on the table, there's also this piece of that it's going to feel like loss, right? Mm. And I think that we, it's going to feel like loss to white people because yeah, they are, they're actually losing power, right? <laughs> um, and it, you know, to me, I kind or of at see least it, sharing power. Well, yeah, but if they have all of it, then they're yeah, going to well, have, right. They're yes. going to feel it. Yes. They're going to feel it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it, to me, the way that I see it and the way that I try to explain it to white folks um, is like, if you are given a gift of like a larger amount of money and you decide I need to invest this, which shout out to all my millennial listeners, because like none of us are going to have retirement. Um, so, <laughs> so it's it's going to be a loss, right? Like you were going to take this money and you were going to put it into a house. You were going to take this money and you're going to put it into your 401k. And it's going to feel like a loss. Like your bank balance is going to be lower because you're putting this into another account. You're putting this into another investment and you are not going to see the results immediately. And so to be able to frame it like that, like it is an investment and you will feel loss, but the payoff will be worth it and it will be equity, right? for everybody. Again, like the wisdom of people of color, because we just have experiences that white people do not have. There is going to be this process. There is going to be this feeling of loss when we decide like we're going to put everything on the table and, and everything is going to be questioned and examined, right? Um, but 
ultimately, I think it's better to make that investment and then to be able to see that pay off, which again, it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next month or next year. Um, so understanding that when we are, when we're talking about equity and systems, this is sort of, it's the long haul, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we have to be willing to kind of sit with that. Um, so let me ask you all this, right? Like, so we're talking about this work of equity, equity journey. And, uh, and, and I've heard you hint at this, but I'd like for you to say it more specifically, is the work of equity the same for black indigenous and people of color as it is for white folks? Or is the work of equity and the growth that has to happen on that journey, is it different? I mean, I, I would absolutely say it's very different. Mm. Um, <laughs> we're bringing, you know, we're bringing different things to the table, right? Mm. Like white folks are bringing power people of color are not bringing power to the table. Like that's not, that's not our thing really. <laughs> you know, occasionally like somebody will get a really powerful position, but structurally power is for, of, by white people. Um, and so, yeah, we're definitely bringing very, very different strengths to bear on this specific process, right? On, on reshaping these systems, um, on creating new structures that, as you said, benefit everyone. One of the things uh, is, is that I totally agree that the work is different. And I wanna say a couple of things about this. First of all, dismantling racism is white people's work. Mm -hmm. Dismantling racism is white people's work. Now, if we want mm. to work together to build an anti-racist, equitable, just culture, we can do that together. Mother Lilla Watson helped us, didn't she? The Aboriginal activist, when she said that if you have decided your liberation is tied up with mine, then we can work yes. together. If you have come to help me get, yes. get the step in, you can keep going, two fingers, yes. right? But if you have decided your liberation is tied up with mine, then we can work together. So we can do that anti-racist liberation work together, but this dismantling racism, that's white folks work. And I don't mean to be so binary, but what I mean is, is I mean to cast responsibility and accountability yes. for the kind of work that needs yes, to be yes, done. Yes. The other thing that I want to sort of, sort of illustrate on this is that it's important really in real time how we actually configure ourselves to work on this. And so it is important for white folks within organizations, churches, schools, uh, nonprofits, corporate, whatever that is to have space for affinity groups and for working together, working, uh, doing their separate work as BIPOC folk and as white folk. And what I mean by that is being able to make space so that white people can learn on each other's time and together mm -hmm. and be curious together, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can challenge one another and mm -hmm. hold one another accountable and decide together how they're going to share power. For BIPOC yes. folks, it is about what? It is about coming together and affirming our experience. There it is again. And thank you, Sterling. So during this conversation, our panelists are using the terms people of color and BIPOC pretty interchangeably. And I just want to clear the air on what 
that means. What is a BIPOC person? BIPOC is actually an acronym, and it stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Very simple. And so when one of our speakers throws it out there, they're just referring to Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. All right, let's get back to the show. For BIPOC folks, it is about what? It is about coming together and affirming our experience. So that is very different work to do. We can do that work separately and then come together to work. And the last thing I'll say about it, Melvin, is that it's, it's this. It is about also doing this work when we, when we do this work separately and at the times and the places to do this separately is also about doing it thoughtfully and in ways in which this does not become the inordinate burden of BIPOC folk. That yeah. is to say that the work that white brothers and sisters need to do does not need to be done on the backs of those who are actually those who are suffering from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the systems and the structure from, from which white folks are benefiting. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, as, as I, I, I listen to your responses, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, the harms that you all have so eloquently described are different harms. There's different harms that have been done. And so it just stands to reason that the steps that need to be taken to heal might be different. So Sterling, um, as you've done this racial equity work within organizations, what challenges have you seen BIPOC folks experiencing as the company they work for or the church they attend or the organization they're a part of has sought to undertake a racial equity journey? Yeah, Melvin, that's a great question. Um, I think there are many, but but where I would sort of, uh, something that I think is thematic, a theme that I see, is really the frustration of BIPOC folks within these systems when their organization has said and has taken on or made a commitment to do racial equity work, the frustration with um, the burden of the work on BIPOC folks, the frustration Mm -hmm. with uh, often feeling not heard or and or not seen Got you. And and not uh, the, the 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 wisdom that they bring to it, feeling that it is undervalued. I think also frustrations around the pace of change, mm. and and sort of um, sort of how 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 slow uh, that change can be. And what I would say to that, Melvin is that all of those frustrations are reasonable and understandable. Mm-hmm. And I would say expected. I hear you, I hear you. So Tori, as you've worked specifically with white folks, what challenges have you seen them experience and what makes it hard for them to make progress on a journey, a, a racial equity journey, like the one we've been describing? Um, I think that the biggest struggle is white folks want to fix it, right? They see themselves as the fixer. They see themselves as the solution, right? Mm. They are they are coded to see themselves as the savior, okay. right? Just just by 
just by virtue of the stories that are put in our history books, right? Yes, by, yes. What I what I like to point out to people is that there is no movie, right, where some hotshot indigenous attorney in New York City gives up their job and runs off to the Midwest to save a bunch of starving white children. <laughs> that movie does not exist, right? And, and whiteness inherently stunts imagination. It is supposed to, right? It's supposed to stunt your imagination. It's supposed to stunt your humanity because you are not supposed to see other people as fully human, or you're supposed to see them as maybe fully human, but still less than white, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there are all of these blocks, I think, for white folks because they, they've only ever imagined themselves one way. Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of time, right? And it takes intentional, um, retraining essentially of of looking to people of color intentionally explicitly for their leadership right mm -hmm. um one of the things that that i have started saying recently is that it is not a morally neutral thing in a white supremacist society for you to only get information from white people that is not a morally neutral choice yes yeah right Mm -hmm. And so encouraging folks to really examine, like, where are you getting your information? Where are you getting your perspective? Who are you learning from? Right. And be super conscious of this. I love that. I, lo I love that. Those are very practical starting points, shifts in perspective, shifts in who we look to for leadership, what we, what we privilege, who do we not see here? I want to also acknowledge that, you know, one of the ways that that organizations can stay away from putting the burden on their black and brown constituents to 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 carry the weight of equitable equ equity change is to look for experts who who are mindful of the things that you're saying like look for folk like you sterling and folk like you tory who, who, who do this work and, and put in the time and know how to facilitate the holding of these different, these different concerns rather than just assuming that, oh, I took a little bit of training as a white person, so now I'm an expert at this thing. You know, I know what needs to get done. Or every black person by virtue of being black knows how to get where we're trying to go, right? Like, but actually looking to folk who, who, who have made it their business to understand the, 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 the trajectory of this work, to understand the kinds of changes that need to happen over time and, and how the sequencing of that, um, to look to that expertise. So I, I, I just, I want to take the time to again, encourage folk, check out Counterpart Consulting, Check out White Homework and check out my organization, Collaborant, and, 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 and see the opportunities to engage folk who can help guide you through this work. This is Tori Williams Douglas, Sterling Freeman, and Melvin Bray saying thank you for beginning the pre-work with us. We'll continue helping you pack your bags for this equity journey tomorrow. Until then, be good to yourself and to others.
tuning in with us. There is a lot to think about, and so we've packed you a little bag to help you in the coming days as you reflect. Consider visiting racialequitytools.org to read their glossary of important and functional words and phrases. We'll continue to address resources to your backpack with each episode. You can also find the links in the podcast show notes or on the pre-work shelf in our Bible app. Special thanks to our host, Melvin Bray of a Labyrinth Consulting and Panelist, Tori Glass of White Homework, and Sterling Freeman of Counterpart Consulting. The pre-work is a product of Being in Relationship, a program of Auburn Seminary. It has been edited and produced by Crystal Cheatham from our Bible app. <laughs>